0: Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio.
1: Hello? Hey, Sammy, how are you?
2: You ready to roll?
1: <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, I'm ready to go.
2: Yo, welcome my summer lair. I'm your host, Sam Yunan. I'm super excited today to be talking to David Peisner. He wrote a book called Homie, Don't Play That, the story of In Living Color and the Black Comedy Revolution. Introduce yourself, what the book is about. This is fantastic.
1: Well, thank. the book is called Homie, Don't Play That, and it's about In Living Color and uh, black comedy. Kind of. I could probably do a better job than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I've just i uh, had my head in uh, a bunch of other stories which, uh, mm-hmm. the last couple of days, but um but yeah it's so it's uh, homie don't play that it's about In Living Color and the Black Comedy Revolution so it's kind of looking at Black comedy particularly in the 80s and the 90s um, but really through the lens of In Living Color.
2: Mm-hmm. And I assume you went back and you rewatched many of the sketches for this book were there were some that were funnier than you remembered or some that didn't age well?
1: oh yeah, definitely um and I'm um, yeah, I mean, I went back and watched the whole show uh, and you know in some spots watched things over and over but the um yeah you know there were some that I didn't even remember from when the show was originally on mm-hmm. that really struck me I mean I remember one uh, there's a there's a, a sketch that that I don't know, people don't really talk about it because it was only on once, but it's called *Timbuk* the Runaway Slave. (laughs) And it's Damon Wayans playing, uh, like us, us, the last Runaway Slave, uh, playing a a slave whose whose family and descendants have been in this cave for, you know, generations. And it's just so sharp and so pointed and barbed and angry and funny. I mean, it's the kind of thing that could be on the air today without, you know, any updating and you know just as funny just as powerful there are other stuff that definitely has not aged that well um some of the, like the men on film stuff i mean you know the the way that people talk about you know lgbt issues now is a, with a lot more sensitivity mm-hmm. i don't think any of that stuff was particularly mean-spirited back then um but but i you know, I, I remember when I interviewed Keenan and I think when I interviewed David Alan Greer about uh, both of them said, there's no way that sketch would have made it on the air today. You know, it's just sensitivities are different now.
2: Hmm. I went as I was reading the book, too. I, I went back and started like YouTubing a number of the clips and I found Handyman fascinating because I found this coming from the same comedy space as like being black in America, just like the racism that you kind of encounter. It reminded me of like um, the the, uh, Jeff Foxworthy, You Might Be a Redneck if. Like, it's in the culture and of the culture, but it's not making fun of the people, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, Handyman was a really interesting one. I remember talking to Damon about that. And, you know, because, I mean, he felt like he had some insight into that world because he, like, he was actually born with a club foot. He had, like, a pretty significant disability when he was younger, uh, you know, obviously as he got, got older, you couldn't really tell anymore, but um, you know, and it was always like, you know, what is more, you know, empowering for, you know, any sort of minority group than to give make them a superhero, mm-hmm. so, you know, and I remember, I can't remember, there was a writer who I spoke to, I think it was this guy, Fax Barr, who was one of the, um, one, you know, one of the kind of prominent writers who, who were on the show for several seasons, and, and he had told me, it might I might be crediting the wrong guy, but um, but I, I do remember one of the writers had told me that they had tried to do a version of Handyman at Saturday Night Live a couple of years before, and it just didn't work because it didn't have that kind of sensitivity to it, and it didn't have that sort of underdog spirit to it. There's, you know, it's that combination of the writing and then the performers like sort of sensing just just the right amount of of I guess sensitivity, I guess.
2: Those handyman sketches have a lot of heart in them. It's They're funny, yeah, yeah. but they have a lot of heart. And it's like, it sounds offensive a little bit when you say it out loud. He's like a handicapped superhero, and he's up, up, and away, exactly. and he fa- falls out the window and stuff like that. <laughs> but they are funny, and they have a lot of heart. And I'm like, oh, man, this stuff's gold.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I, I'm just remembering now, the um, Fox made them screen those for like a, um, you know, sort of like a dis- disability rights group because you know they were worried that they were going to get a lot of uh, pushback on that but people who came in who who actually had disabilities loved it like mm-hmm. you know across the board everyone thought it was fantastic and that was kind of like the end of that argument i guess
2: yeah this idea too that the the uh, the shows were edgy or might be offensive to certain groups or certain people uh, you mentioned men in film we talked about handyman already can you talk about the uh, the 1992 uh, Super Bowl and how, like, revolutionary that was?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that was, uh, you know, an idea that, I mean, it, it, it was, it's hard, it's hard to remember now, but, like, the Super Bowl halftime show prior to, to that year was nothing. I mean, like, culturally, it, it, it was, like, you know, college marching bands, you know, Las Vegas, like, magic acts. Like, it was it was not this big thing that people, you know, complain about or, you know, lose their mind over or talk about for days and days before and after. It was nothing. It mm-hmm. was a time to go fill your, fill your bowl with chips, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever. And so, you know, this is an idea that actually came from the network. Well, actually, originally from this guy who was sort of this sports marketing guy outside the network, but then he sort of brought it to the network and said, what if we do this? And, and events, um, you know, Keenan loved the idea and thought, you know, it's fantastic. And, and they knew, you know, the whole idea before that was that no one would go against the Super Bowl. No one would probe it. There was no counter program against the Super Bowl because it was seen as there weren't enough viewers to make it worthwhile. You know, people just put on reruns on the other channels if you didn't, because everyone was going to watch the Super Bowl. And, you know, they calculated a the fact that, that it was. You know we only need this many people to turn the channel to make it a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm. And they
1: got a lot more than that. I'll tell you what the numbers were, twenty million, twenty five million people uh, you know changed the channel from the Super Bowl. but they but they were also because normally in living color was was taped. It wasn't live. So this was the first time they'd had on a live show. And so there was a huge amount of worry about you know what the performers might might say, what they might do. So there was a five-second delay that they put that, that the network insisted upon, but then, sort of at the at the one moment that ended up becoming sort of uh, you know the point that perhaps they should have pu- pushed that button, uh, they didn't. Um, in fact, the guy I spoke, I remember interviewing the executive whose job it was to to um, you know alert the standards and practices people that oh. You know, we need to to push that uh, delay button because something was said that we couldn't go out on air. And he told me I blew it because I was laughing too hard at the joke. And you know <laughs> that that's what happened. And so uh, it ended up being a small. It ended up, I think, the way I described it in the book was something like it was exactly the kind of uh, you know sort of conflict or or. um it created as much of a ruckus as you really wanted. Like, everyone was talking about it, but no one really got sued. No one lost their broadcasting license. You know, it, it was enough to get people talking about it, but not enough to, to cause any real problem. But the, but the main, you know, takeaway from that was that the next year, Michael Jackson did the Super Bowl halftime. Yeah. And that was the beginning of, you know, Super Bowl halftimes as we know it.
2: Yeah what was the moment or what was the joke that was the uh, they they should have pushed the button on the screen oh god so
1: so it was it was you know men on it was they were doing a men on football and i believe the joke was they, they were making fun you know at the time there was this sort of widely traveled rumor that uh, about Richard Gere and a gerbil, um, <laughs> yes. and yeah, I mean, and uh, yes. <laughs> and so it was just sort of yeah, it was it was in the culture. People sort of knew the joke, but uh, but Damon made a reference to it, and uh, you know mm-hmm. it just went out on air, and that was the end of that. They also did. They also made a reference to to Carl Lewis, the the, um, the Olympic sprinter, uh, essentially uh, being a gay and uh that went out over there and that so both of those those th- all both of those i believe happened in the course of about 10 seconds of this one sketch yeah um but the uh but no one you know no one pushed the button to to kind of bleep them out and it was fuck, you know in the end it was fine
2: so you talk about how in living color changed super bowl and kind of had a cultural impact how was its uh legacy in terms of like comedy and what it contributed to, like, the culture.
1: You know, that, those kind of things are always, you know, it's obviously all sort of open to interpretation. But, um, you know, I think you can look... I mean, I, I sort of looked at In Living Color as part of this hinge point in, in, in our culture, mm-hmm. you know, in, in sort of pop culture. And this, this moment... Um, and, and I wouldn't say it, it was alone in, the, in that moment. There were other things happening in the culture, things like the Arsenio Hall show some of like the best Spike Lee movies. There were uh, a couple of other uh, like Robert Townsend movies, but there were, there were these things um, and that were happening like late 80s, early 90s that were kind of opening up kind of mainstream culture to all of this African-American culture. And so if you look at kind of culture before and culture after, you know, pop culture now mm-hmm. is essentially run by black culture that it sets the, sets the agenda for pop culture. You know, in the early eighties, it was very much a kind of a fringe thing. I mean, of course, you know, people knew who Richard Pryor was and, you know, Bill Cosby and things like this, but, but it didn't really, um, it it was just a part of, of, you know, a a sort of corner of popular culture. Whereas, you know, now it's everything. Um, and I don't, I wouldn't say that in living color did that alone but I think it was part of this, this uh, moment in time where that was changing. Um, you know, and it, it wasn't just changing in comedy and going TV. You know, you saw it in music with, you know, the rise of hip hop. Um, you saw it in films. You saw it, you know, you, you saw it sort of across the board. I mean, you know, even, even in things like politics, this was, I mean, the mid-'80s was sort of when, you, when Jesse Jackson first started sort of winning Democratic primaries and things like that. I mean, there was a lot going on. And 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 in a way, you know, that was sort of my real inspiration for writing the book. Was it was a kind of a way to tell that story and In Living Color. You know, it, it was a really, it was a, re- it, it was a point where kind of all these things tended to come together. You know, a lot of the the people. So Richard Pryor was obviously a huge influence on Keenan and Damon. Eddie Murphy was obviously a huge influence on them. In Living Color itself did did a a lot of work to make hip hop more mainstream. You know, uh, at the time, hip hop was, you know, something that you kind of, it it was very much still seen as a fad. It was on the coasts. It was, you know, LA and New York and a couple of other big cities. It was big, but in in, in the, the middle of America, it was like, you know, there weren't hip hop radio stations, things like that. All of a sudden, in Living Color is putting, putting, you know, groups like a tribe called Quest or De La Soul or Black Paris sheep. One. They're, 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 yeah. Black sheep. They're putting them on in prime time. There was no one else who was putting these guys on prime time. I mean, you had certainly not on, on network TV. I mean, yo know, T V Raps was going on, but that's again, cable. And this is a time that, you know, not everyone had cable TV. Arsenio was putting them on, but he's putting them on late night. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all these things are happening at the same time, but, uh, you know, In Living Color was a real kind of conduit for a lot of this culture.
2: I want to pick up on the Richard Pryor thread for a moment because you had a great line on page forty-seven of the book. You said the story of the rise and fall of the Richard Pryor show is amusing, infuriating, and in many ways completely predictable. Why did you choose to write about Living Color rather than the Richard Pryor show? You clearly had like an affection in writing about the, <laughs> the, the Richard Pryor show, and I mean, we need we need more bios. Uh, just kind of documenting Richard Pryor's show and what that also kind of gave us culturally too.
1: Well, I think some of the reason is is very sort of. Uh, I mean, there were only four episodes of Richard Pryor's show. So yeah, like it's it's, it's going to be a <laughs> short book. Yeah, but um, and you know, and there there also had been um, there have been some 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 good books about Richard Pryor. Uh, you know, I wish I had them on the top. Uh, I, I mean, I read two of them, and I, God, I, one of them was by. Saul's? I don't know, I can't remember the guy's name, but but there 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 have been there's been a fair bit written about Richard Pryor, um, and deservedly so. There have been documentaries and things like that. In Living Color had kind of coasted a little bit under the radar, um, and not just in that there had been no books about it, but you didn't really see a lot of like magazine stories about it. You didn't see, you know, I think it had just been a little bit forgotten, and In Living Color itself only lasted basically about four and a half seasons. And so, you know, it's not, it didn't become the institution that Saturday Night Live did. But anyway, but, but, you know, to get back to Richard Pryor, he, he was sort of the, the ground zero for a lot of this humor. And I think the Richard Pryor show itself was so far ahead of its time. I mean, when you look at some of those sketches, I mean, they're, they're very artsy and avant-garde. And he wasn't afraid to not be funny. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like uh, a really kind of a brave thing. And, and I, you know, the things that I see in the Richard Pryor show. I mean, I, when you look at a show like Atlanta, Donald Glover's show, I feel like that is, is really kind of, you know, the weirdness and, and, and uh, of a show like Atlanta is a real direct descendant of the Richard Pryor show.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think in in a, you know, and, and certainly there are there are parts of the Richard Pryor show that of course were, were a big influence on in living color but you know i think when keenan talked about richard pryor as as a, as an influence he's thinking about like the kind of all of richard pryor's career and not just that show um because you know richard pryor's movies his stand-up those are the kind of things that were kind of more more direct direct influences, I think, on In Living Powder.
2: Yeah, Richard Pryor had a huge body of work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and Richard
1: Pryor was, you know, I mean, it, it's also a different time. You know, the Richard Pryor show, where, where, where if you look, and when I said that it was predictable, that it, were, that it was going to fail, mm-hmm. I mean, you only had to just sort of look at what that show was and what it was dropping into sort of culturally. There was nothing... Uh, you know that it, it not there was nothing in film, there was nothing in TV that that kind of laid the groundwork for it. Whereas, just like what I was saying before, within Living Color, it was it was it arrived at exactly the right time. It, Arsenio was already on the air. It, you know, th- movies like um, Forty Eight Hours and uh, and Trading Places, um, Beverly Hills Cop, like those things were already in the culture. Spike Lee, like, Do the Right Thing had already happened. You know, they, like, all of that groundwork, Robert Townsend, uh, Hollywood Shuffle, which King and obviously wrote for, all of that stuff had already happened. Yeah. And so when In Living Color came along, it wasn't, it all, although there were tons of people who were being exposed to a lot of these things for the first time, a lot of the work had been done. And, and you know, it had been done, you know, by people like Richard Breyer.
2: And you, you just touched upon Eddie Murphy. Everyone kind of knows his cultural impact. Like you mentioned, Beverly Hills Cop, his work on Saturday Night Live, those kind of things. Eddie also has a kind of unrecognized pop culture contribution in terms of his friendship with Keenan and Ivory Waynes that a lot of people sure. kind of don't really know or overlook. Can you kind of elaborate on that friendship and how that kind of influenced uh, In Living Color?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so Keenan and, and, and Eddie were, were very tight. They had met, you know, as, as comics, stand-ups coming up in New York. And... You know, there became this group, and I, I read about this a little bit in the book. That became, you know, they christened themselves the Black Pack, yes. and this was Eddie and Keenan and Robert Townsend and Arsenio and and Paul Mooney, who is an older comic, but you know, was probably best known as, as you know being Richard Pryor's kind of personal writer. I mean, he wrote wrote a lot for Richard Pryor. But anyway, the, these guys hung out together. They they kind of um, they worked together some. But Eddie broke, obviously broke through and broke big long, you know, before any of these guys did. And I think there was some, particularly between Arsenio and Keenan, a little bit of sharp elbows of like who's going to be next after Eddie. But you know, Eddie was was pretty generous, with, you know, in terms of giving people opportunities, giving people credit. Keenan was a, a producer for. For Eddie's stand-up special Raw, I think I have that right. I'm a little bit uh, I haven't thought about this stuff in a while, but I'm pretty sure that's right. It was either for Raw or Delirious, but I'm pretty sure it was Raw. But uh, he was also Keenan's uh, first movie before, which was before um, In Living Color, uh, the, the black exploitation send-up. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you, sucker. That was Eddie's idea, mm-hmm. um, and Eddie, Eddie Eddie gave it to him. And he said, oh, you know, I'm not going to do anything with it. You can have it. Um, and so Eddie really did look out for his friends and did try to, you know, put them on. And, uh, you know, he, he was kind of a, a, as one person who had worked with Eddie and then later became a producer on, um, on In Living Color, said, like, Eddie was kind of like the secret godfather of In Living Color.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great line. And if you look,
1: right, yeah, and, and if you look at, also like what eddie had done on saturday night live like that also was laying the groundwork for for in living color i mean in fact you know the fact that eddie was by that time had left saturday night live and was you know obviously well into a movie career and that they had never really replaced eddie with anyone who was sort of bringing black culture to saturday night live that opened up the door for in living color to exist and in in a very direct way i mean you know uh this woman, Tamara Rowett, who, who was the same person I was just referring to before, who was a producer on In Living Color and who had worked with Eddie before, she was one of the, you know, one of the people close to Keenan right at the beginning when they were making – when they were first getting In Living Color off the ground. And, you know, they were – both she and Keenan were both saying, like, Saturday Night Live just they – they're not – they don't get black culture. Ever since Eddie left, you know, they don't – they're not even trying. They've given – they've given up on it. So this is – this is – this is the lane that is open for us. So, and that became the living color.
2: Yeah. I mean, at one point, wasn't Damon Wayne considered the next Eddie Murphy in terms of Saturday Night sure. live? Sure. And I
1: mean, right, right. And they brought him in. And I think I read about this in the book. I mean, it was, it was kind of a disaster and, you know, it wasn't all Saturday Night live's fault. I mean, Damon was, and I would arguably say probably still is a pretty temperamental artist. And, he when he was brought into Saturday Night Live it was really like okay you know that was that was kind of the vibe here comes the next Eddie Murphy this is the guy who's going to replace Eddie on Saturday Night Live and to Lauren Michaels credit I think he was trying to protect Damon from having to live up to that because it's it, I mean to be fair I mean I would argue that Eddie Murphy is the most important performer in the history of Saturday Night Live I mean Others may have done more on um, the show, but in terms of, I mean, there's a, a very, very compelling case to be made that Saturday Night Live would not have survived those years had they not had found Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, they, you know, there was nothing to recommend about that show uh, in those years besides Eddie Murphy, um, and he really kept it alive. And and I forget which of the Saturday Night Live executives. But one of the key Saturday Night Live executives at that time was quoted on as as basically saying that that without Eddie Murphy, Saturday Night Live would have would have died. But but so when when Damon went to Saturday Night Live, Lauren was trying to protect him, I think, and you know trying to protect him from those expectations. But what he was doing, you know, the what Damon saw was my boss isn't letting me do anything. You know, they're not giving me any sketches. I'm just sitting here in the background. You know, playing like, you know, non characters in, in sketches that aren't funny. And, you know, he got frustrated. And so that's uh, the Saturday Night Live got-
2: black narrative almost. Yeah, of course. Of course. And it's not like they've sorted it out that well, <laughs> you know, since then.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: but, but the, uh, you know, and I, I, the story is in the book, but it's not, you know, I, I think it's probably also in the Saturday Night Live uh, oral history. But, but Damon, during the sketch where he was basically supposed to play this sort of straight laced Straight Laced Cop, on uh, in, on Saturday Night Live, he was just so tired of not having anything to do on on, on the show, that he just in basically, he played that Straight Laced Cop as if he was one of the guys on, in men in F- men on film, <laughs> and and Lauren fired him like on the spot after the like uh, backstage at the show while it was going on, and I believe that's the only time that ever happened. He was he was you know basically told to get out. Mm-hmm. you know that's it you you can't do that and you know i think when i spoke to damon about it you know i think damon you know with years you know behind him now like understands you know under, like understands why he was fired and understands like that the, the opposing view but at the same time he, you know at that t- time he was like yeah i think the way he put it is I was, I was a young angry black man and i you know i felt like i would you know i wasn't I, w- I wasn't getting an opportunity. I was being held back, and you know, so I don't. I, I wouldn't say that he necessarily regrets what he did, but but I think he, he can see both sides of it now.
2: Well, speaking of Lauren Michaels, one of the difference between Keenan Ivory Waynes and Lauren Michaels is that in the writers' room, Keenan would hum the theme song from Deliverance. <laughs> what was that sim- supposed to symbolize when uh, he would hum the, the theme song from Deliverance for the writers?
1: Well, so Keenan, to his credit. You know, wanted writers to go for it in the, in the writer's room. He didn't want them to hold back, and he didn't want people to be sort of, I guess, overly sensitive, or, or in particular, I don't think he wanted them to be sort of racially sensitive. And he didn't mind if a white writer pitched something that was like kind of – I don't want to say he didn't mind, but that was his way of telling a writer that they had fallen – Fallen on the wrong side of why something is funny, Mm -hmm. particularly from a racial standpoint. Like so, you know, he wanted people to 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 push that envelope, and to but it was always it couldn't be making fun of black people or making fun of black culture. It was having fun with black culture, and there was like this very, you know, it, it, it was an important distinction. Like we're, we're, you know, we're laughing with this, not at it. And so, but, you know, look, it it was a freewheeling cutthroat writer's room and people fell on the wrong side of that line all the time. And I guess my point is that to his credit, yes, he would sing that, he would hum that deliverance theme song when, when a a writer was getting too, I guess, redneck with it, Uh, (laughs) you know, but, but he wouldn't, Fire them. He wouldn't exile them. He would just reel them in and say, "Yeah, that's that's not, you know on the wrong side of, of funny," mm-hmm. and you know, and then you try again. And uh, having t- having interviewed probably eighty or ninety percent of the, the writers on the show, I mean, some of some of them had great experiences, and some of whom had dreadful experiences. They w- they would all vouch for the fact that Keenan had. He knew what he wanted on that show, and he had, he really did have a vision for it, and you know, and I think that even the the writers who realized that they didn't fit that vision could respect, you know, that that uh, that he knew what he was doing.
2: Yeah, uh, I want to pick up on that thread of cu- uh, being cultural sensitive, culturally sensitive, uh, because you're a white guy and you're obviously writing about all these like uh, <laughs> black comedy, yeah. right? And I would be remiss if I didn't point this out, but did you feel that gave you an edge as an outsider? Because sometimes you can look at a culture, like I'm in Canada, so we can look down, not necessarily look down, but look into America and see a completely different perspective of the American culture and how things are going and not going uh, versus being in America and the culture there. So did you feel that being a white dude and writing about this black comedy revolution, did that give you an advantage as an outsider? I don't
1: know if I'd say advantage. It gave me... Like, I could only write it from my perspective,
2: you know? Like, I, could,
1: I wasn't going to pretend to be part of black culture. I mean, I, I, for my entire adult life and before, been like a huge admirer of black culture, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I mean, that's sort of how I got into writing this book. But, you know, you, it's that sort of thing of you don't know what you don't know. And so, you know, I, I did have to sort of be careful a little bit and in, interesting in, in not trying to speak. I, I guess I was always cognizant kind of saying, uh, this is my take on this story. You know, a, a, an African American writer, a, a, a female writer, uh, whoever, would, would, would probably have written a different book, might have been just as good, might have been better. I would probably want to read it, you know. I mean, if, if it was well done, but um, you know, it, it was something certainly that I thought about, and, I, and I, it was interesting, you know, especially because although you know it's obviously this pioneering um, sort of black comedy show, a huge, a big, significant percentage of the, of the writers on the show were white. So they were sort of dealing with a, a version of the same thing I was dealing with,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: was just we want to, you know, kind of go for it and, you know, put our stamp on this, but, you know, we have to realize that this isn't our show, and you know it's not my show. It's a show I love, and you know it, it sort of almost gets into like why the show fell apart when when Keenan and and, and and the Wayans left, was because it. did regardless of who was writing the show and what, you know, color they were, male or female, like Keenan, the show was Keenan's voice or, uh, or maybe arguably Keenan and Damon's voice, but that, that's kind of, that both gave the writers, you know, cover and gave them kind of guidance.
2: Yeah. Keenan would take the hit for the team. Right. Well, you know, you know, there, there was, there was,
1: when well, before the show even got on the air, you know, they, it was just a pilot at this point, and there were all these sketches. There were sketches about uh, Louis Farrakhan. There, I, I, there might have been
2: a, <laughs> the, the Star Trek one. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, but, but <laughs> uh, and, and there and Fox, which was you know the the executives of Fox, who were pretty much uniformly older white dudes you know, they saw this pilot and were worried. Mm -hmm. And they weren't, and I I want to give them, like, some credit, and I feel like they were sort of worried for the right reason. They were sort of worried, like, are we being racist? Are we being, you know, uh, is this culturally insensitive? I mean, keep in mind, this is 1990, 1991, where those ideas weren't, you know, as, as prominent in, in the culture as they are now, just in terms of, like, you know, let's be culturally sensitive. They And, and so they were really giving Keenan and, and the show, you know, kind of the runaround, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. They, they, you know, they were making them uh, go through all these focus groups and, you know, testing the show and research and blah, blah, blah. And Keenan would sit with these uh, researchers and, they would ask him questions about the humor and this and that. And Keenan, it, it pissed Keenan off um, because, you know, his point was that I like, I'm, I'm, I'm a, an intelligent black man. I know what, you know, I, I'm not insulting myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, you know, I know better than you where that line is and you don't do the same thing. You know, the studio doesn't uh, focus group, you know, Woody Allen movies with like Jewish Americans. They don't focus group John Hughes movies with like the white people from the suburbs. Like you know this this he felt like he was being singled out just because they didn't get it. Yeah. And and, and you know he eventually kind of put his feet down and won that argument. And and I think that was an important argument to win in terms of setting the agenda for the show because I think that he basically. You know, let the Fox executives know I'm running the show. I know how to run the show, and let me do it. And for a long time, that's why the show is successful. I think when it's, they started trying to grasp more control of the show, mostly because it was successful, uh, that's when Keenan got frustrated and left. Um, you know, so that that was sort of both the beginning and the end of his of uh, his time there.
2: I want to pick up at the uh, end of the book. Um, so your book, Homie, Don't Play That, the story of a living color and the black comedy revolution, it closes off uh, with this, uh, I thought, was a really significant point. You've been writing for, like, different magazines and outlets, like the Rolling, S- uh, Rolling Stone, New York Times, uh, Spin, Billboard, mm-hmm. and you close uh, Homie, Don't Play That with this quote, if there's a definite pattern around the demise of the prior show, Living Color, and Chappelle show, Dave Chappelle show, there's an even larger framework this pattern fits into. Considering, consider the career arcs of many of the top black comics of the past 50 years. And even throughout this conversation, one of your strengths seems to be seeing patterns. You start to see through, mm-hmm. th- through the pop culture, you see patterns and kind of like you kind of know almost like almost like tea leaves or like almost see where the river is kind of going. Can you somehow articulate or explain how you have that superpower or as a gift <laughs> as a writer because that's really cool for in terms of cultural, because you're not just writing about like this show or anything like that. Like the, the subtitle of the book is the black comedy revolution. You're seeing a pattern.
1: Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, that's like one of the nicest things anyone's ever ever said to me, but, uh, but yet, you know, I would say that like, I, I definitely spent the better part of, well, I've pretty much spent my whole adult life, like writing about pop culture and thinking about pop culture. Um, and, for most of that, most of the time, that's not a particularly useful thing to uh, to have, and, and, and I don't know if I'd call it a superpower, but uh, you <laughs> know, it's, not, it. it's definitely. But but it's, it's you know, most of the time, it just makes you like the guy at the party who knows the answer to like whatever trivia question. But um, I, I do think that that I mean, I think that's a really sort of significant um, story in in black culture uh and and and, you know you started to sort of but but basically the story is and and, you know this goes back to richard Pryor and actually before richard Pryor is is that there's different there are different pressures on i'll well i'll say black comedians but, but i think that there are different pressures on on black sort of popular artists in general you know at least from sort of the 60s through you know the 2010 or whenever you know when you look at there's – this, there's this continuum of black comics, and if we, let's just, for argument's sake, start it with Richard Pryor. And you have Richard Pryor, and he kind of hands the baton to Eddie Murphy. And then as I was talking about before, there's this kind of elbowing between Keenan and, and, and Arsenio and, and maybe Damon lands a little bit, but who gets it from Eddie?
0: Mm-hmm. then it goes
1: to let's say Chris Rock and you know there but, but the the disappointing thing about this story and it, and it kind of goes you know there's Chris Rock and you can kind of see it going past Chris Rock to Chris Tucker and to Kevin eventually you know sort of to, to Chappelle and to Kevin Hart maybe now that but but the, but the disappointing thing about this narrative is that I don't know if it's the industry or the culture sees well we can only have one big sort of black comic at, at a time one big black male comic by the way mm-hmm. at a time and so i do think the the sort of positive thing that has happened in let's say the last five to ten years is that, is that that has broken down um and i do think that you 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 do see now a lot more diversity in black culture
0: mm-hmm.
1: you can have a kevin hart and a donald glover both being, you know, being successful, you know, at the same moment, even though they're very, very different characters, and their humor is very, very different. There, there's a, a much broader pot. You can have someone like, uh, oh god, it's uh, what's her name? I can't, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name now. She's got the HBO show Insecure. Um, but anyway,
2: uh, it's oh, a uh, um, something.
1: It's a, it's a Ray. It's a Ray, I, I think yes. it's her name. Yes. You can edit that out if I said it wrong. I'm pretty sure it's, it's a Ray. Right. But, but um, you, there's just a lot – there's a much more of a multiplicity of voices now. Whether that will last, I, I kind of think it will. I do think that, 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 that culture is changing. But there, you know, the, for so long, there was this story of you know, each of these black comics – and you can put people like Martin Lawrence and Cat Williams – who all had their moment where they were kind of the guy. And if you look at the arc of their careers, it kind of goes the same way. It's You've got this you know, big build, you get huge, and then you, it goes down quick. Um, now, they go down quick for different reasons, but if you look at Richard Pryor's show, In Living Color, and Chappelle's show, all of those shows ended on not the best terms and kind of in some ways for, for similar reasons. And so, you know, it's, it, it becomes a pattern that, that's hard to miss after a while. Um, I do think, you know, things like Key and Peel and, uh, you know, hopefully like Atlanta and blackish. And, and I think, you know, you're seeing the story change a bit maybe mm-hmm. um, at least for the time being. But, but yeah, those, those are definitely, I don't know. They're just things I think about.
2: Yeah. A friend of mine, uh, Jagar, he, so when In Living Color was on, it was, I went to a a high school, Lemero Collegiate, and it was very urban, to put it mild. (laughs) And so In Living Color uh, was, like, fantastic, like, everyone was always talking about the sketches the next day and all that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. My friend Jagar, he, for one assembly, he actually dressed up as Homie D Clown. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it, it was, um, like, some sort of International Women's Day or Celebrate Women or something. Anyways, as part of the sketch or whatever, he ended up bopping on the head a couple of girls. And so the principal, he got called to the principal's office because you're not supposed to bop women on the head. In, right, right. In, uh, but, it's, but anyways, what was interesting was uh, the teachers that stuck up for him, they were saying, they were referencing, this is, like, the stuff we grew up with, like, some of the older teachers. This is the stuff we grew up with, like, this Three Stooges and that kind of physical comedy. Sure, sure. And so it's interesting too, not just like in terms of black culture, but just like how it even connects back to co- like comedy and culture and self beyond just the obvious stuff that we were just talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it is, you know. Hopefully, it's all part of the same story, and we don't have to always splinter it off into like, just like you're saying. Yeah, it's not all. I mean, Keenan's one of. I remember one of the one of the shows that was like a huge pillar for him was the Carol Burnett show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, and. You know, and, and I'm, he was a he was a fan of like films like Airplane and uh, Monty Python stuff. I mean, these these he was you know a, a ravenous kind of consumer of comedy, and so all of these things you know filter into that, you know, it, you know into that sensibility. I mean, you only need to look at probably the you know the biggest star to come from that show was Jim Carrey, mm-hmm. obviously a white guy. Uh, which is, you know, it's a, it's a whole story in itself, but, but Jim Carrey, you know, his sort of, like Keenan could see that that, the comedy, that both the physical comedy and, and sort of the sensibility of, uh, of Jim Carrey was going to work with what he wanted to do. It the fact that Jim, there was nothing particularly black about Jim. I mean, Jim was Canadian, mm-hmm. he is Canadian, I guess. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, you know, he knew that that would work in, in what he had in mind. Um, you know, he, Kenan's influences, you know, he, he was like a big Jackie Gleason fan. Like, I mean, you know, it, 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 he was definitely somebody who knew comedy.
2: Yeah. So the the book is out now, uh, Homie Don't Play That, The Story of In Living Color and The Black Comedy Revolution. Thank you, David, for taking it some time to talk to me about the, uh, the old school In Living Color. It was fun to go down memory lane and to see the Fly Girls and uh, the old hip-hop yeah. and all the sketches and... Uh, handyman homie d clown uh fire marshal bill all those good stuff so thank you where can people find you online
1: you know hopefully they can't <laughs> no um no uh you know uh i am on twitter uh i think it's at david Peisner, mm-hmm. uh, p e i s n e r and but you know I, I, I mostly uh i just mostly try to try and work for a living you know to keep keep like writing uh stories and so uh you know if you Google me, you'll find whatever whatever I've done lately.
2: Well, thank you, David, for taking the time. We covered a lot. I think we covered from, like, Three Stooges, Richard Pryor, to Chappelle show. So we covered a lot. Yeah.
1: Well, you did a good job, then.
2: <laughs> all right, man. Well, thank th- you. thanks so much for taking the time and for being interested.
1: Bye.
2: That was my interview with David Peisner. As I was saying to him at the end there, it was super fun to go back and to see all the uh, Living Color sketches uh, Fire Marshal Bill is ridiculous Indie <laughs> man Still cracks me up um, Arsenio was another one too Where Kenny and I wings, Had that big old butt uh, If you remember that You know what's crazy too Is I didn't put this together But um, Living Color and Arsenio Hall Ended within a week of each other In 1994 So That's surreal when you go back Uh, And you think about it, like, when did the Arsenio Hall show end and when did Living Color end? It was a week of each other in 1994. So those are uh, some strange times. As I said, the book is Homie, Don't Play That, The Story of In Living Color and The Black Comedy Revolution. I highly recommend it. If you have a chance, pick it up. Uh, My name is Sam Yunin. This has been another fantastic episode of My Summer Lair. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think the young kids call it Insta now. My pal Sammy. Jokes, yo.